from PRX. Villains, dissemble no more. How old were you when you first read Edgar Allan Poe? Twelve-year-old's reading. He's, you know, slicing the head off and burying it in a wall. What do we really know about who he was and how he died? There's the rabies theory. There's the alcohol theory. I like to say that Poe's biography starts with his death, not with his birth. And why does his legend just keep growing? Suddenly there comes Poe, like a breath of fetid air. It tells us dark things about our own souls. Blowing from some dark European cellar. He is appealing to the monster inside of us. It's like the asterisk on the American dream. The monster in us responds. And Poe is becoming the Santa Claus of Halloween. Today on Studio 360's American Icons, I admit the deed, tear up the blanks. The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe. It is the beating of his hideous heart. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I have been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. It's such a wonderful place to begin. I'm I'm not mad, right? The disease had only sharpened my senses. Would a madman have done the kinds of preparations that I did in order to murder somebody. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. He builds it up enough to the point where you almost understand why this man felt that he just absolutely had to carve this eye out of this man kill him and put him under the floorboards. Just to prove how sane I was, let me tell you how I disposed of the body. The guy's hearing this heartbeat, heartbeat. It's driving him crazy. Villains, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the blanks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. The Telltale Heart has the defining traits that we expect in a story by Edgar Allan Poe. Obsession, murder, and insanity, all distilled into just a few pages of overheated prose. And like the heart still actually beating beneath the floorboards of American culture, Poe's stories keep haunting us. We're drawn to his psychological aberration, but we're also a little terrified of it because we recognize that this is one of ours. That's Tony Magistrale. He is co-author of the Poe Encyclopedia and teaches at the University of Vermont. 
And every year, his students remind him what sets Poe apart from all the other famous American writers of his era. When you're studying the transcendentalists and you've heard enough proselytizing from Emerson and Thoreau, and suddenly there comes Poe, who is like a breath of fetid air uh, blowing from some dark European cellar. I first encountered Edgar Allan Poe as a little kid, maybe 10, reading a classics illustrated comic book of his stories, which then led me to the real things. His stories were unlike anything I'd read before. Gruesome, dark, gory, but also slightly, maybe funny, like the author was winking. My name is Megaran. I'm a former teacher from Philadelphia, turned rapper, songwriter. Megaran makes hip-hop out of classic literature, including Poe, with the rapper MC Lars. It tells us dark things about our own souls, where Emerson and Thoreau were like, let's go write about nature. Poe was like, okay, but one day you might turn against the people you love and destroy them. Just keep that in mind. So it's, it's like the asterisk on the American dream. Telltale Heart, Mega Ran, MC Lars. Better than Cliff's Notes. When did you discover Edgar Allan Poe? Too early, I think. I think everyone discovers him too early. Most people probably encounter Poe for the first time in high school. But before high school and Poe, for the last quarter century, there's R.L. Stein, whose Goosebump series has spooked and entertained millions of young kids. And here they've got these 12-year-olds reading. He's, you know, slicing the head off and burying it in a wall. How many horror writers have their material last still be read 200 years later? You can't name too many. I mean, there's maybe Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker. And that's the list. And that's it. Poe's horror stories have insinuated themselves so deeply into American pop culture that they're practically inescapable. The Telltale Heart alone has inspired countless reinterpretations from D.W. Griffith's film The Avenging Conscience in 1914 to the 2009 movie Telltale. The heart's the problem. Kill the heart. Kill the problem. And all the parodies. And those are all just from one of Poe's stories. That is one hell of a ticker. Poe's DNA has been passed down all through our culture, from Sherlock Holmes to Stephen King. In our horror detective fantasy fiction-dominated world, he is the presiding spirit. Poe is recognized and known and read, translated into every language. His image is everywhere in our culture. Gerald Kennedy teaches Poe at Louisiana State and is co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Edgar Allan Poe. There is this huge kitsch industry now. There are Poe bobbleheads and action figures and puppets, pillows, air fresheners, and lunchboxes. Halloween has become an outsized event in our culture, and Poe is becoming the Santa Claus of Halloween. 
I get like four Dead Ground Poe memes on my Facebook a week. I'm just a Poe boy. Nobody loves me, whatever. Like, he's so meme friendly. He's so hot topic friendly. He's dominated culture. And what does that say? Maybe it means we're all just depressed and scared and freaked out that he's become the voice of the disaffected kids. Part of Poe's continuing mystique charisma, his immortality, comes from the fact that he died pretty young at age 40, under mysterious circumstances. Excellent career move. I like to say that Poe's biography starts with his death, not with his birth. That's the author Matthew Pearl. He wrote a novel with characters trying to solve the mystery of Poe's death, called The Poe Shadow. Because it's the way he dies and the lack of clarity about how he dies that fuels so much of the legends and lore and perception of Poe. There's the rabies theory. There's the alcohol theory. Amy Branham Armiento is a Poe scholar at Frostburg State University, and she's the president of the Poe Studies Association. There's even, I've read a carbon monoxide theory, the carbon monoxide coming out of the street lamps. There was an article that was published in a Baltimore newspaper that attributed his death to congestion of the brain, which nobody really understands what that's supposed to mean. The one that's been getting a lot of traction lately that ties into the alcohol theory is the cooping theory. Cooping. Cooping is the practice of somebody being kidnapped and forced to vote over and over again while they're plied with alcohol, possibly drugs, maybe beaten, um, kept in little locked rooms in between these voting sessions. It was the 3rd of October, 1849, election day in Baltimore that year, when Poe was discovered semi-conscious in a tavern, wearing somebody else's clothes. As was common then and there, this tavern was also an election polling place. And there's this thought that that's what might have happened to him, that he was dined and wined and mostly wined, actually, right? And for some theorists, this explained a few things. The clothes that didn't fit him, because maybe they were making him change clothes between polling locations. Um, His being under some kind of... uh, Influence and his ending up in a polling station uh, that also was a tavern. Armiento thinks the real explanation is probably a lot simpler. It was a cold time of the year. He had become inebriated, and then he was exposed to the elements, and he just never recovered from that. He was taken to a hospital where he raved deliriously for a few days. During one coherent stretch, a doctor told him he'd do everything he could to help. Poe apparently said the best thing someone could do for me is to blow my brains out with a pistol. He died on October 7th, a Sunday. Nobody cared that, that Poe died. And that's, that's kind of the incredible thing about Poe's death narrative is that he could disappear. That this, this writer who, for us, is one of the most famous writers in history, one of the most well-known faces in literary history, could just vanish from the face of the earth. Almost as soon as he died, a disinformation campaign started that smeared his reputation in almost every way possible. And it was the work of one guy, Rufus Griswold. Rufus Griswold was also a writer, and 
In fact, they would cross paths over their lifetimes in their writing careers. Griswold was younger than Poe and edited a popular anthology of American poetry. Poe became very interested in Griswold because he wanted to be in that collection. At one point, Griswold had bribed Poe to write a good review of a collection that he had assembled. That's Scott Peoples, the other editor of the Oxford Handbook of Edgar Allan Poe, who teaches at the College of Charleston. And Poe, of course, took the bribe, but then the review that he published was not as completely favorable as somebody would have a right to expect if they had paid you for it. Um, And Poe kind of delighted in this. There was no love lost between him and Poe. And that's Sandra Tomps, an English professor at the University of British Columbia who also studies Poe and his circle. I think they had a professional relationship, and they were also rivals. Even so, Poe, for whatever reason, named Griswold his literary executor. But just two days after Poe died, an obituary ran in the New York Tribune, pretty much the high-end daily paper. The obit was written by Griswold under a pseudonym. And it begins, Edgar Edgar Allan Poe Poe is is dead. dead. He He died died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. I mean, Poe was no saint, but Griswold depicted him in an even worse light than um, anyone who knew Poe personally would have done. He walked the streets, in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses, or with eyes upturned in passionate prayers. He would brave the wildest storms, and all night, with drenched garments and arms wildly beating the winds and rains, he would speak as if to spirits. Griswold was cashing in on Poe's reputation as a writer of these strange Gothic tales to paint Poe as this almost supernatural figure. But it might have been a way to draw attention to Poe, to give Poe infamy. That's kind of the Poe that's lasted. You know, there's a reason that Poe's face is probably one of the most familiar, if not the most familiar. I'm just trying to think if there's other authors whose faces are as iconically familiar as Poe's. Um, Maybe Shakespeare. But that public image is really at odds with much of the reality of the author who worked at his writing so carefully. And we'd like to romanticize that image of the artist as a hot mess. The novelist and memoirist, Corin Zelkus. Zelkus writes suspenseful fiction with unreliable narrators, like Poe did. He's so large and in charge when he's writing. He knows what he's doing. He was a wonderful literary mind um, who thought deeply about uh, how to construct a story. He wasn't just driven by these mad whims. Poe was born in Boston in 1809, so I went to check out the Poe residue there, such as the statue of him across the street from Boston Common. That's where I met up with Paul Lewis, a professor of American literature at Boston College. I think it's the most selfie-included statue in all of Boston. We've got a lot of statues. It took Boston two centuries after his birth, 2014, to finally raise a statue to Poe. So the statue is called Poe Returning to Boston, and it dramatizes an imagined moment when 
he has returned so overflowing with abundant creativity and popularity that his suitcase can't contain it. And therefore, pages of manuscripts are tumbling out the back of the half-opened case and an oversized raven is flying out in front. And he's walking towards the known residence of his parents. Paul Lewis and I walked a couple of blocks south from the statue to find what the experts think is Poe's birthplace. We have now reached the site of the original house in which Poe's parents were living at least a couple of months before he was born. Where Edgar was born is now a fenced-in vacant lot, no plaque. And, and was it a house or uh, uh, an apartment? I think it would have or? been a rooming house. You know, they were employed, but they certainly could not have afforded to rent a whole house, I wouldn't think. David Poe had a drinking problem, and before long, he took off, abandoned the family. Eliza Poe, by herself, took Edgar and his two siblings on an acting tour through the South. But she was sick with tuberculosis. And in December 1811, one month short of his third birthday, he became an orphan. And you just can't underestimate the impact of that experience on the formation of his imagination, his psychology, his temperament. The three Poe children were split up. His older brother went to Baltimore. Um, His sister, Rosalie, went to a family in Richmond. And Poe went to another family in Richmond, the Allens. And that's where his name, Edgar Allen Poe, comes from, his foster family. Please let me keep him. He'll be just like our own child. A 1942 biopic called The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe dramatized the scene. The child of actors, our own. They never did adopt him. John Allen was a well-to-do merchant. His wife, Frances, doted on little Edgar. And when the family moved from Virginia to London, Edgar went with them and went to school there. The Allen residence was located around the corner from the British Museum. And it was filled with all kinds of artifacts and statues. They had the Rosetta Stone. They had mummies, sarcophagi. Older students would have already been reading works like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's alive. Undoubtedly, all of these things, mummies, Gothic novels, and his dead mother were helping to turn young Edgar into the writer he'd become. By the time he got back to the United States, Poe had already made up his mind. He was going to become a poet. Coming up, Edgar Allan Poe discovers his horror muse and inspires a landmark series in the history of B-movies. That's just ahead on this American Icons Hour about the tales of Edgar Allan Poe on Studio 360, right after this break. Studio 360. Welcome back to Studio 360's American Icons about the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. As a young man, Poe fought continually with his foster father, John Allen, over money. He wanted to become a famous poet, but John Allen wanted Edgar to go into business. When Allen died, he left Edgar nothing in his will. 
had Poe inherited that fortune, uh, his life would have been entirely different. Maybe he would have been a writer, but I doubt he would have written the stories uh, that we have today. You know, Poe is interesting in that he was of a generation where people who wanted to write who didn't have personal fortunes, it was assumed you're going to have a day job. The author Laura Lippman once wrote a mystery novel where her detective, Tess Monahan, investigated Poe's mythology. And Poe did everything he could not to do anything other than write, which is why he was broke all the time. In his 20s, he moved in with his aunt Mariah, who he called Muddy, and her nine-year-old daughter, Virginia. They were dirt poor. Lynn Cullen, author of Mrs. Poe. That was the thing about Muddy and, and Poe and Virginia, their little household. They were beyond poor. Four years later, Poe and Virginia, his first cousin, got married. It's true that he did marry her very, very young. He was 27, and she was 13. I I might point out that it it was legal for males to marry at 14 and females at 12 during that period. But uh, people have often speculated about what kind of uh, perversion might have inspired Uh, such a relationship. I don't think it was really perverse at all. Uh, It was uh, Poe's way of being practical, of keeping the family together. Whatever the nature of their relationship, Poe was devoted to Virginia and to his aunt-slash-mother-in-law, Muddy. The three of them moved together from place to place, Richmond to New York to Philadelphia, back to New York, as Edgar took jobs. He kind of made his reputation initially as a a book reviewer who would just, you know, really chop up the poetry or the fiction of whatever writer he was was reviewing. And he uh, acquired the nickname the Tomahawk Man. Poe was also spending less time writing poetry, which didn't pay well back then either. His whole life, he wrote only one giant hit poem, The Raven, for which he earned less than $20. So instead of poetry, he spent much more of his time writing satire and short fiction, adventure tales, high-concept fantasy, and gothic horror. You know, I think that it was, to a great extent, uh, Poe trying to play the market and, and at the same time recognizing that he had a certain talent for this kind of fiction. But he knew that those kinds of works would pull in readers. More than a century later, they definitely pulled in Jeff Vandermeer. Vandermeer started writing short stories as a teenager in the 80s and went on to become the best-selling author of horror novels like Annihilation and Born. I thought I was writing stuff that was fairly normal. (laughs) And then I would give it to a first reader and they'd be like, that's uncanny or strange. I immediately got like a Poe collection and and just basically uh, read it from cover to cover. He had this gift for the single-focused kind of horrific moment, whether it was a pendulum blade or the last brick put into a wall. And I really appreciated the visceral detail of that, that you could feel his stories in your body. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, his whole frame at once shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, There lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity. For Poe, 
what we get with the horror is the purest thing, the purest form of the drug. When he was in his early 30s, the family was living in Philadelphia. That's where he wrote some of his most famous stories. The National Park Service now owns one of the Philadelphia houses Poe rented. So the safe way to get to the cellar is this way. Ranger Joanne Scalizzi gave us a tour of the apartment where he lived with Virginia and Muddy and their cat, Katarina. So when you look at this room, what you see is a, a typical cellar. Um, it, you can feel that it's cool, that it's dark. But for us, the cellar is exciting because Poe published a story here called The Black Cat. That story is told by a man who becomes annoyed by his pet cat and kills it in a fit of rage. But then it comes back, or anyway, a cat that looks just like it does, and then the man tries to kill it again. I aimed a blow at the animal, which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal. I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. The narrator decides to hide his wife's body in a wall in the cellar. When the police come to investigate, a a sound comes from the basement, from behind the wall. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. You know, Poe keeps um, returning to this theme of um, the dead coming back, you know, burying the past, burying your sins and them just coming back. And the guilt, I, <laughs> I'm always uh, drawn to these stories about guilt and shame, and uh, Poe seemed to be dripping with it. Maybe it was survivor's guilt. The year before Poe wrote The Black Cat, Virginia was singing one day and began coughing up blood. Poe told friends that she had ruptured a blood vessel. But Virginia had not burst a blood vessel. She'd contracted tuberculosis, the disease that had killed his mother and a few years later would kill this young Mrs. Poe at age 24. Virginia contracting tuberculosis is just the latest woman in his life of many women who he would become close to, they would become ill, and then they would die very young. And this did have an influence on some of his tales. There seems to be this concern that Poe has about maybe if he had done everything he could have for the women in his life, if he had protected them enough, if he had cared for them enough, that if there had just been something he could have done, that he's carrying this guilt that these women come back to exact a vengeance. Poe's ultimate revenge of the beloved tale is the fall of the House of Usher. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone 
on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country. It's a, a brother and a sister who are in love with each other. Jack Jems wrote a novel called The Grip of It, partly inspired by the fall of the House of Usher. And eventually the tension between them destroys them. In Poe's story, the narrator arrives at this crumbling, once grand family estate. And at length found myself as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. He finds his old friend, Roderick Usher, in a state of high anxiety. Usher's twin sister and lover, Madeline, is wasting away from a mysterious disease. Before long, Madeline Usher dies, and Roderick puts her coffin in a dungeon under the house. Think about what it means to place Madeline down in the basement, to push her down into some dark place. It's a wonderful anticipation of a phenomenon that Freud would label as repression. I beheld him gazing upon vacancy for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention, as if listening to some imaginary sound. Roderick Usher, at the very end, reveals to the narrator that he has been hearing sounds from down below for days. Haven't you heard them yourself? We have put her living in the tomb. Madeline Usher shows up alive and bloody at the bedroom door of her brother, bringing him down as he had feared all along. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. The fall of the House of Usher inspired the first of a series of Poe movie adaptations, and I saw it as a little kid with my parents at a drive-in. This house is centuries old. It was brought here from England, and with it every evil rooted in its stones. That version of House of Usher was directed by Roger Corman, the insanely prolific and influential B-movie director and producer, and it starred Vincent Price. The history of the Ushers is a history of savage degradation. Over just the next three years, Corman made six more Poe adaptations, all but one of them starring Price. And always in this house. And those movies really changed forever the way we see Poe. Always in this house. Fall House Usher is, is, is a little campy, but I liked them. I liked that. I mean, that's why you kind of enjoyed those movies. As a kid, the actor Bill Hader was fascinated by Vincent Price. I grew up in the 80s, so it was that, that I always knew him as the guy from Thriller. And wow. Then, so Michael Jackson introduced you to Vincent Price. Yeah, Michael is, Jackson. Well, because when he was on that, we went, who's that guy? Who's that voice? And my parents going, oh, that's so cool. Vincent Price is on this song. And going, well, who's that? You know, and then he was on like Tylex commercials. Is scrubbing mildew making your shower a chamber of horrors? Spray on Tylex Instant Mildew Stain Remover, and mildew stains vanish with no scrubbing. When he was a teenager, Hayter decided to buy a box set of the Corman Poe movies. So when I saw these three things I liked, Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price, 
and uh, Roger Corman, it was like, oh, well, I got to get in on this. I mowed lawns that summer, and that was one of the things I bought with my lawn mowing money. Roger Corman was famously, you know, cheap, and he would use the mm-hmm. same shot over and over again of, like, the, the the mansion that they were in would always catch on fire, and there would always be this shot that was a ceiling caving in on fire. That shot is in, like, three of the movies. Uh, it's the exact same shot. <laughs> I'm Roger Corman. I'm a director and producer. I was making a series of uh, very low-budget pictures, and I had always loved the work of Poe, and uh, specifically I had read The Fall of the House of Usher when I was in school, and I said I wanted to do The Fall of the House of Usher. And to my surprise, they said yes. They only had one question. They said, there's no monster in the fall of the House of Usher. And thinking fairly quickly, I said, the house is the monster. And they bought the project on that basis. Foul thoughts and foul deeds have been committed within its walls. The house itself is evil now. Corman's movie, which came out in 1960, doesn't share a whole lot with Poe's short story, which was kind of a hallmark of Corman's Poe adaptations. The one, the one thing the, the Corman movies do get is, um, is the sort of strange exoticism of Poe. That's the film critic and horror expert Terrence Rafferty. And, and Corman does sort of, sort of get that with, you know, the, the outlandish costumes and uh, the actors who are too old for their roles. Well, and the shameless sensationalism, right? And the shameless sensationalism. Yeah. Though they're not as sensational as, uh, as, as Poe's own stories because they lack his fevered voice. Um, I mean, so much of what, what goes on in Poe's fiction is interior. It's people describing their feverish mental states, their obsessions, their hallucinations, and doing it with, with you know, italics and exclamation points. And is that interiority what makes it so hard to turn Poe into into movies? I I, th- I think it's it the interiority is the most serious problem. Despite the bee hamminess of Corman's movies, lots of people love them, like the mystery novelist Tess Gerritsen, who wrote a gothic haunted house novel called The Shape of Night. My mother was an immigrant from China, and she didn't understand English very well, but what she really understood was the American horror film. So when I was small, my mother took me and my brother to just about every horror film that that she could identify, and um, that's how I found out about Roger Corman and Edgar Allan Poe. It's, It's really through Hollywood, through these really cheesy movies in retrospect. And I think one of the first things she said about my books when I became published was she said, they could be scarier. So it's always, you know, more and more adrenaline for my mom, and I I think I inherited some of that. Coming up, you know all those detective shows on your watch list? I watch all the cop shows on TV. You can thank Poe for those. I got a lot of my insights right there. That's just ahead on Studio 360's American Icons. Studio 
So this is where he was originally buried? Yes. I went to visit Poe's gravesite in Baltimore with the mystery writer Laura Lippman, a lifelong resident. He was buried behind the chapel in a very plain and simple grave. For the grave of the American master of Gothic horror, the atmosphere is right. It's behind a former church surrounded by brick walls and wrought iron gates. There's a small headstone marking the spot with a raven on it. Laura Lippman told me about a wonderful ritual that started many, many decades ago at the original gravesite, every year on Poe's birthday, January 19th. There was this anonymous, mysterious guy. So for many years, he would bring a half bottle of cognac and three red roses to the original gravesite. And effectively, toast Poe. The newspapers named him the Poe Toaster. I witnessed the visit of the toaster in 2000 because I was about to write a book about the ritual of the Poe Toaster, and I wanted to see it, and I talked my way in. We had a private watch party inside the church, and we were looking out the windows to the back when we saw the man approach. The Poe Toaster stopped showing up after 2009. Then in 2016, the Maryland Historical Society anointed a new official Poe toaster. It is a tradition that many thought was never more, but the mysterious Poe toaster returns to Baltimore. This one shows up on Poe's birthday wearing a hat and playing Danse Macabre by Camille Sansan on the violin. Nice tune. There he is. Crowds caught a first and last glimpse of the new toaster during a birthday tribute to Edgar Allan Poe this weekend. Like the cause of Poe's death, the identity of the original Poe toaster remains unknown, which is what attracted Laura Lippman to the case. And she's not the only writer who couldn't resist putting Poe into a mystery. I love you, Edgar. Be careful. I believe the killer is taunting us. In the movie The Raven, John Cusack plays Poe on the trail of a serial killer who is enacting the murders in Poe's stories. I challenge a brilliant detective mind of Edgar Allan Poe, a game of wits. I will kill again, and on that new corpse, I will leave clues. In that movie and elsewhere, the line between Poe and the characters in his stories has been blurred. But the idea of Poe as a detective isn't that much of a fictional leap. Poe is usually credited with creating the detective story, but he called them tales of ratiocination. The scholar Amy Branham Armiento. There is no such thing as a detective. The writer Matthew Pearl. It's actually before the word enters the lexicon and before the first detective department gets started. This morning, about three o'clock, the inhabitants of the Quartier Saint-Roch were aroused from sleep by a succession of terrific shrieks issuing from the fourth story of a house in the Rue Morgue. The Murders in the Rue Morgue is a locked room mystery. A crime has happened in a hermetically sealed space that nobody should have been able to get in or out of. An unusual quantity of soot being observed in the fireplace. A search was made in the chimney and, horrible to relate, the corpse of the daughter, head downward, was dragged therefrom. Upon the face were many severe scratches, and upon the throat, dark bruises and deep indentations of fingernails, as if the deceased had been throttled to death. 
The party made its way into a small paved yard in the rear of the building, where lay the corpse of the old lady, with her throat so entirely cut that, upon an attempt to raise her, the head fell off. The police are stumped, but Poe's detective, Auguste Dupin, solves the mystery after closely examining the crime scene for clues and reasoning his way backwards to the solution. Why, only an escaped orangutan could have climbed to the fourth floor apartment, committed the murders, and left by the window. He was inspired by several accounts of orangutans, which were kind of a sensation of the day. It's almost certainly a forerunner of King Kong. Uh, And there's also racial undertones to that. What is this saying about white fears with African-American men desiring white women? That crypto-racism in Murders in the Rue Morgue was probably connected to the white paranoia all around Poe in 1841 Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a a really um, volatile place where there were a lot of Southern sympathizers and where black people experienced uh, a lot of oppression. So Poe was writing about America, about the cultural tensions that he experienced. The murders in the Rue Morgue basically created the mystery genre as we know it. Gerald Kennedy. Poe, in that first piece, was able to put together so brilliantly all of the key elements that later became the components of of the detective story. The bumbling metropolitan police force, the uber-rational private detective, the ordinary narrator who stands in for the reader. Poe had the whole formula down 45 years before Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the first Sherlock Holmes story. It's like he hit a home run on his first trip to the plate. And like Holmes, Dupin is not at all a lovable hero. With, with Poe, a lot of his, like, protagonists aren't necessarily good people. Rin Chupeco wrote an updated version of Murders in the Rue Morgue for the Poe-inspired short story anthology, His Hideous Heart. Poe isn't so much about writing about monsters as he is appealing to the monster inside of us. And the monster in us responds... There's another key ingredient in the formula Poe created with Murders in the Rue Morgue, one that almost every police procedural show uses. You are a voyeur. Historian Amy Lippert studies the 19th century American city. You are on the shoulder of the detectives as they discover these bloody crime scenes, often with acts of horrible violence meted out specifically against women and described in very graphic ways. He wrote in the philosophy of composition, the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. Poe's biography makes it pretty clear where this came from. Starting with his mother, several of the women in his life died young of tuberculosis. But Poe's obsession has spread to every corner of pop culture these days. The trope of the beautiful dead girl lives on in almost every detective show. It's creepy and unsettling when you stop and think about how much entertainment is built around the bodies of dead young women. You know, he's writing about some really grisly, horrible crimes. And what really populates his stories, what makes them come alive and simmer for these audiences, then and now, I would argue, is this true crime quality. In The Black Cat, he explains our attraction to behaviors that are wrong, what he calls perversity. 
Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? Poe's own perversity drove him to turn against friends and colleagues, which made it even harder for him to earn a living. He had a tremendous talent for uh, alienating his contemporaries. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was truly gifted in um, doing the perverse thing that got him in trouble, that offended the wrong person. And by the end of his life, uh, he was really quite an obscure figure. Um, I mean, you know, the death of Poe didn't set off any national, you know, mourning, and uh, only a handful of people came to his funeral. Not long after his death, Poe's reputation blossomed in France, helped along by a translation by the poet Charles Baudelaire. It took other European fans like George Bernard Shaw to finally reintroduce Poe to a large American audience in the 20th century. In a lot of ways, you know, Poe's a very un-American author. That's New School professor Eugene Thacker, author of In the Dust of This Planet, Horror of Philosophy. He is the sort of shadow self of the American psyche during that period. You know, and he's, he's very much questioning all of the pretenses of the American dream and American optimism. And horror fiction really hasn't been the same since Poe. Lovecraft was so influenced by Poe, he was even worried that he would never get out of his shadow, that, he, he, that everything he wrote would simply be sort of a Poe ripoff. And you can see that, I think, going down the line. You know, you see it in writers like Richard Matheson, Shirley Jackson. You know, you see it in Joyce Carol Oates, early Stephen King. Stephen King has acknowledged Poe's influence on him, as has Alfred Hitchcock. Mrs. Bates. I mean, that's Poe. You know, he's, I think Poe is the same kind of artist, not just in terms of thematics and genre, but also in that really cerebral approach to making people pee in their pants. If you're able to remember anything else, give us a call. Psychological thrillers are are sort of based in him, so um, so when I think about I, I I ride the train. You what? I ride the train to New York and back. The girl on the train. I'd wrap my hand in her long blonde hair and I jerk her head back, I just jerk it back. You know where um, where someone slowly like comes to understand their own mind or their this their own past that they've shut themselves off from or something. And then I pull her down to the ground, and I would just smash her head all over the floor! Where Poe's influence makes itself felt is is more in an atmosphere or or a vibe than in particular tropes uh, or particular plot points even, because plot is rarely the point. But the atmosphere of you know, of dread and fear and terror. The themes that obsessed Poe crop up in contemporary works, uh, whether they're in the genre or not, you know. uh, Don't look away. Don't look. 
Look at me. Just look at me. A scene in Game of Thrones of a brother and sister who are the last of their line. Nothing else matters. <laughs> Nothing else matters. Only us. And a burning castle is crumbling around them as they embrace. You know, this is right out of the House of Usher. Poe's themes and atmosphere stick around because they were archetypal in fiction and because he was obsessed with one of the fundamental emotions, fear. If you are scared of things in real life, uh, if there are things that are troubling you, it's almost like reading a scary story allows you to funnel all of that fear into another direction. It allows you to um, to purge some of that fear and misdirect it. He understood the fascination that we all have with death and dying. And Poe knew it better than anybody because Poe came from a world where all of the women in his life died from tuberculosis. And he watched it all happen. But I, I think what Poe did was take that and turn it into art. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Poe was not only tormented by fears, but he was acutely interested in understanding how fear works, where it comes from, how it affects us, how it speaks. Studio 360's American Icons, The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, was produced by Matt Frasica. Our associate producers were Rosalind Tortasillas and Tommy Bazarian, with production assistance from Zoe Saunders, Lauren Francis, and Charles Eli Carr. The readings were by Michael Cerverus and Paul Hinkis. The original music was by Alexis Cuadrado. Music from the Poe Suite is by Edward Hardy. Special thanks to Amy Branham Armiento and J. Gerald Kennedy. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. The senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. And our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Studio 360's American Icons is supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. For more American Icon stories, find us at studio360.org. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, why Mark Morris thinks almost all dance performances should have live musicians. Well, I don't want to watch dead dancers either, and I don't want a dead audience. Although I've been in situations sometimes where the orchestra is so terrible, I wish they'd just put on a record. <laughs> Superstar choreographer Mark Morris on dance, music, and his new memoir. Next time on Studio 360.